Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. It is a joy and a pleasure to be here with you on this last day of 2023. As I'm sure you all recall, I was here about a little over a year and a half ago. I think it was the last Sunday of April in 2022. So it's been a while, but it's good, it's good to be back. As, or, as has already been mentioned, I serve with a ministry called Ministry to State. And that name may be somewhat opaque when you hear it. So it is a ministry to government. It is a ministry of our denomination, the PCA of a mission to North America. And so, I, so we have a team in Washington, D.C. That, that ministers at the federal level. And there are a number of state ministers in a um, number of states. Our goal is to get to all 50. We're not quite there yet. We're about seven to eight states. But I'm the minister to state government in New Jersey. And so just to give you a, a brief update, um, I think maybe indicative of the ministry is the way the year began and the way it concluded. I had the privilege of, of praying at the governor's State of the State address in January. I was invited to do the closing prayer there, and I did the invocation at the most recent session of the assembly just before Christmas. Um, and in between, we have developed uh, a devotional time for members of our assembly. We gather in prayer and look at the word for about 10 to 15 minutes before voting sessions. That began in the spring, so, and we did it most recently when they gathered. we gathered in December. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a ministry called Angel Tree, which gives uh, Christmas gifts to children of those who are incarcerated. You place an angels on a Christmas tree. People take the angels, they purchase a gift, and then the gift is given in the name of that parent, usually the dad, who's in prison to the children. So we were approved to have um, our statehouse Christmas tree become an angel tree uh, this, this season. And so members of our legislature and staff and those who work at the statehouse took angels and they brought gifts and then we had a, uh, um, an angel tree gift-giving party for the children at one of your sister churches, Hope Presbyterian Church in Lawrenceville, um, a couple of Saturdays before Christmas. So that just gives you a sense. I think the, what I can say is that there's, the Lord is opening doors, opportunities for conversation, opportunities for relationships, and uh, um, it's been an encouraging year. Uh, that being said, I welcome your prayers. I covet your prayers. Um, I, again, as I said, I believe there is an openness there um, among our members, and may the Lord be found faithful as he always is to open hearts to receive the Lord of Lords and King of Kings as their own. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you now for this time that you have set apart for the, for the reception of your word, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who was born among us, who lived among us, who died for us, who, raised, who was raised to life um, and now reigns at the right hand of God, whose return we anticipate. Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you find our hearts receptive, open, humble, obedient to you who loved us and gave himself for us. Be glorified now in our midst, we pray in your name. Amen. So one thing that has been said to you this morning yet among all of you, the greetings is Merry Seventh Day of Christmas. 
So if you, I don't know, have you received your seven swans of swimming yet? If you haven't, maybe you'll find them waiting for you when you get home. Because see, in, in, the, in the traditional calendar, a Christmas isn't just simply a one day and then it's over, right? When a child is born, you don't forget about it the next day. Christmas is 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas. We have a song about all that, concluding with January 5th. And then January 6th is Epiphany. And so we're recognizing today as Epiphany Sunday. And Epiphany recognizes the revelation of the Messiah to the Gentiles, of Jesus as Messiah represented by the visit of the wise men. And so that will be the subject of our passage this morning. From Matthew chapter 2, we will look at, read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he uh, uh, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage begins now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. 
And what follows in our passage are responses to that that event above all events, the birth of Christ. And there are two primary responses. There's humble joy and there's murderous rage. There's also a third response, which seems to be something different, but ultimately ends up aligning with the murderous rage. First is the humble joy. Verses 1 to 2. Now after, I'll read them again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now these two verses have raised a host of questions over the centuries. The scriptures are often very economical in their presentation. And oftentimes we are told things without explanation. Still, it's important for us to realize that in spite of whatever questions we may have, what's written tells us what we need to know. The scriptures are sufficient. However, Okay, the scriptures are sufficient. That doesn't mean that we can't ask questions and bring them to the scriptures and spend a little time trying to fill in the details. First, where do these wise men, these visitors, come from? Well, a likely, but certainly not certain place, but a possible place is Babylon. From our biblical history, we know that several hundred years beforehand, the Jews were exiled to Babylon for 70 years with some continuing to stay and never returning. So, there's a, so the substantial Jewish presence in Babylon would provide an ordinary explanation for the Babylonian awareness or expectation of a promised king, a Messiah. However, such knowledge doesn't rule out the possibility of a direct revelation from God of the birth of the Messiah. This is something that still goes on today. A consistent testimony we find among Muslims is that of a vision or dream prompting them to inquire about Jesus. Then they'll, they'll go to find Christians and ask them to tell them about this one who has appeared to them in some way. Tell me about this Jesus so that I might know him. And it shouldn't surprise us that in the part of the world that is closed to the gospel, that the Lord would, according to his sovereign will, exercise extraordinary or unusual means to break through, to make himself known. Now, what about the star? That's what you really want to know about, right? What's up with the star, right? It's been the subject of speculation over all these centuries. Well, actually, there was a book written in 2015 um, entitled The Great Christ Comet by Colin Nicole, um, and he was a, a New Testament scholar who spent four years studying astronomy among astronomers. And through his painstaking research, he concluded based on the star's appearing, its movement, its brightness, its time in history, that the star was a comet. Now the most obvious ex question we can have is how can something in space millions and millions of miles away be over a particular location or home even? However, the interesting thing about comets is that they give the appearance of pointing to a particular location. The book has received many endorsements from, from 
the gamut of, of New Testament scholars to theologians to scientists to astronomers. However, the question is this. Do we depend on Colin Nicole's book being right to substantiate Matthew's account? No, we don't. We have Matthew, who's God's appointed messenger, to tell us what we need to know about Jesus. And what Matthew tells us happened here is something we find in the Bible on the whole. When God's saving power breaks into the world, quite often along with it are miraculous and powerful displays in creation which testify to his salvation and advance it. And we especially find that in Israel's exodus from Egypt and in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing here. Creation itself, the universe, is testifying to the birth of its king. And so in response, what do these nobles, these wise men, who might even be royalty from a distant land do? What do they do? They come seeking him. From the beginning of his life, Matthew is telling us that the one who is born king of the Jews is Lord of the nations, the king of kings to whom all are called. Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And what do they do in coming to seek him, in coming to seek Jesus? First, well, they do a number of things, but first, they are willing to do whatever it takes to get to him. They're willing to travel any distance, to overcome any obstacle. They're willing to ask questions. They're willing to investigate. They're willing to learn from the Bible, as we find in our passage. But their singular goal is to get to him. And this is often what we find Muslims doing who, uh, to whom the Lord appears in a vision or dream. They'll do anything to get to him. They won't be denied, and it can cost them everything, their family, possibly their lives, to become believers in Christ, followers of Jesus. How about you, friends, this morning? Do whatever it takes to get to him. Whatever you have to do, if you don't know him, if you don't believe in him, seek, knock, ask, inquire, learn. And if you do know him, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, keep learning. Because he is inexhaustible in his riches, in who he is, and who he makes himself known to you to be. Coming to him and knowing him is more important than anything else in your life. For he is your life. And anything that you have comes from him and is to him and is through him and is for him. And is from his gracious and abundant goodness and mercy and kindness to you. It is more important than anything. Do you believe that? Are you persuaded that that is true? I pray that you would be. Because for those of us who are, and especially for those of us who are familiar with him, with his story, our greatest danger perhaps is in becoming indifferent. Because that's what we find in our passage. 
Right? The chief priests and scribes are indifferent. The wise men come and come seeking him. They come with questions. They come inquiring, where is he? And the reply of the priests and the teachers of God's law is, oh yeah, he's right down the road in Bethlehem. But anyway, what's for lunch? Like they just move on. They're told of the birth of the true king, the one they've been waiting for, and they don't seem to care. They're indifferent. They know, but they don't know. It is, as has already been said this morning, and is worth saying over and over, and if, and if you're a Christian and you're a part of the church, you hear this all the time because it's of first importance. It is very important to know the scriptures. However, that is in order that the Bible would know you, that it would master you, so that you would respond accordingly. Those who knew the scriptures here don't respond at all. There was no change in their lives based on what the scriptures were saying. Friends, it is dangerous to be exposed to God's word and to know God's word and not be affected by it. That is dangerous. Do you attend to God's word with reverence and with openness to the will of God expressed in it? And do you respond accordingly with humility and obedience and thanksgiving? Friends, respond to the word revealed to you. It is his gift to you. So the first step, whatever it takes, you need to respond and you need to get to Jesus. But once they are there, these visitors from the, the distant land, these wise men, these mysterious figures, one, what do they do once they find him? They rejoice, they worship, and they give him their treasures. And these three are inseparable. Verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You catch that? Not simply they rejoiced, or they rejoiced exceedingly, which seems, okay, like, all right, we get it. But they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is maximal. Matthew turns the volume up to 11. Let me get that, all right. Some of you get it, all right. Why such an extreme response? Why do they rejoice exceedingly with great joy? What does that indicate? It means, at least at this point in time, that they understand who he is. Because when you do, it's the only fitting response. This is the source of all the Christmas carols we sing, right? Glory to the newborn king. Oh, come, let us adore him. We don't, I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone here. There's a reason why we love our Christmas carols. Because they express what need, there's, there's, there's a joy. There's, a res, there's an appropriateness to the words in response. And, and we want to sing them over and over. 
Friends, do you understand who he is? Do you realize how good and how great he is? Do you know his love, his holiness, his righteousness, his hope, his authority, what he's done for you? Do you know what he makes of you and who you are in him? Do you know him? Rejoice exceedingly with great joy, for your king has come. Rejoice, for he has stopped at nothing to make you his own and to never, ever let you go, no matter what. Rejoice with exceeding joy, for he bears your sin and death for you. Rejoice, for he rises from the dead and raises you and all creation with him. Rejoice, because he is worthy. Rejoice. If you spend time with him, you will know and you will experience that joy. When you rejoice, then with thanksgiving, you will fall before him and you will worship him. When you are doing that, what are you doing? You are humbling yourself before him. You are saying, I am under your power. I'm under your authority. I'm under your truth. I'm under your commands. I'm under your mercy. I'm under your grace. I'm under your love. Your will is my command. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And at that point, what do you do? You hold nothing back from him. You open up your treasures and you offer them to him. And you say, all that I have and all that I am is yours. If you hold something back, then you will not rejoice and you will not fall before him. I'll trust you and I'll love you if, if my wife respects me, if my husband loves me, if you give me a spouse, if you heal my child, if you give me a job, if you take away my pain, if that girl or that boy is interested in me, if, if, if. These are the heartaches of life. They are not trivial. They are not small. They are the story of our lives. Fill in the blank. What is your if? But if you have an if, or I'll give myself to you, but... My money is mine, or my time is mine, or my body is mine. If you say I'll worship you, I'll give myself to you if you won't have joy. If you say I'll worship you, I'll give myself to you, but you won't have joy. And you won't be worshiping him. You'll be worshiping your own plans, your own desires, your own success. But when you see him and you acknowledge him as he is without reservation, then you will rejoice, you will worship, and you will open up your treasures and hold nothing back. Your time. My time is yours. My resources are yours. My abilities are yours. Brothers and sisters, rejoice exceedingly. This is what you're invited to. This is what the the, the call to come to Bethlehem to see. Him whose birth the angels sing is to come adore with bended knee and to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. 
I encourage you here to leave here this morning with that arresting phrase in your minds and hearts because it's striking. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The other option is what we find in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is threatened to the core of his being. Why? Because Jesus' birth, his presence, isn't a sweet sentimental happening that just makes you feel good inside. It isn't hot chocolate on a cold winter's night. It is a sweeping away of all power and authority that is not under him. This is a revolution. It is a dethronement. Hand in your crown, buddy. There's a king, and you're not him. And I'm not him, and none of us are him. So all of Jerusalem is troubled. The very place that should have been rejoicing exceedingly with great joy isn't at all, but is disturbed, is troubled. Why? Because they preferred what they had and the order that it provided. They preferred the way things are and the way they had ordered their lives to God's deliverance if that deliverance meant a disruption to the established order that they had built their lives around. They preferred the way things are to God's deliverance if it meant a disruption of the way they had ordered their kingdom. It was their kingdom after all, so far as they were concerned. And the, invent, the invasion by a new king was deeply, deeply disturbing because now that meant that things were going to be different and they didn't want them to be different. These were devout people who read the Bible and knew it and served God apparently, and yet when he came, they opposed him with all of their hearts because they didn't want the disruption that he brings. He disrupts your temporary fading sinful life in order to give you his unfading, righteous, eternal life. It's a good trade. Make the trade. It's a good deal. But first is the disruption of your power and authority. We say, Lord, save us. We need you, Lord. Okay, well, the thing you need to be saved from is you being king, is me being king, safe from being our own master and having Jesus be king instead. Friends, he is a much better king than you are for yourself, than I am for myself. So here you have these two options, humble, generous joy or trouble which turns to rage and becomes murder. Now, in our passage, or at least in our minds, you're like, okay, fine. I'll take door number three. There seems to be a third option. We've kind of already talked about it, right? That of indifference. What does indifference say? I'm not interested. Leave me alone to live as I want. That seems to be a middle ground. I'm not upset. I just want to, I don't care. It seems to be a middle ground, but it's not. Why? Because that's the exact issue Jesus comes to address. You and me ignoring him to do as we please. That's us being king. His kingship, his presence, his rule threatens that very thing. Leave me alone. I'm not interested. 
your kingship and his kingship will necessarily, unavoidably collide. So those who are indifferent end up siding with Herod. Over time, my dear brothers and sisters, you will become more and more like Herod or more and more like Jesus. Those are the two options in front of us. We become more and more like the one who rules over us. Who is Herod? Herod is, is, is you know, a historic figure who is in, in authority over the region at that time. Right? But at the same time, Herod is a demonic figure representing the devil. In demanding ultimate authority without rival, Herod is actually worshiping and serving the devil, doing his bidding. So in Revelation 12, we read at the, that at the birth of the Messiah, who was to rule over the nations, the dragon, the devil, seeks to devour him. But, that we, read, but we read, as we also find in our passage, that Jesus is snatched away to safety. So what does Herod do when he can't get to Jesus? He goes on a murderous rampage. He commits an, an atrocity, an awful, wicked, horrible crime. He kills all the boys under two in Bethlehem, bringing about inconsolable grief. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I mean, this is a horror that he inflicted. Why does he do it? He wants to destroy and kill Jesus. Jesus is always the ultimate intended target. He's the one who's in the way. He's the one we want to get rid of. Our rage against our maker and his right to rule over us expresses itself in our actions against one another. The dragon, the devil, makes war against God by going to war against those made in his image. And often we in our sin and our desire to rule and be independent of God to establish our own kingdom, we do the devil's work for him. We don't commit mass murder. Right? I'm assuming there are no mass murderers among us here this morning. But we hurt one another. We demean one another. We insult one another. We ignore one another. We use one another. And we weep and lament over what's been done to us and over what we've done. And sometimes the rage against God is expressed in rage against our own selves in rejecting who God and his goodness has created, has created us to be, such as when people reject that they are a boy or girl or a man or woman. In our passage, however, Jesus, who is both God himself and man, the image of God, he escapes unharmed. What about the sorrow? What about the inconsolable grief and the injustice and the oppression and the murder that comes about in our passage, that comes about in our world, that comes about in our lives? What about all of that? If he is above it all, then what? Is it the case that Jesus, the promised, long-for Messiah, is separate from all the trouble? Really? Jesus was spared from death at the time of his birth, but not so that he would escape the troubles 
and the awful unjust violence of the world. But in order to live a humble, joyful, obedient, worshipful, worshipful love for God and love for others' life. He does this for you as your representative. He enters into our life with all of its troubles and makes it his own. Because he was without sin, Jesus feels the weight, the reality of sin and suffering most purely, most intensely, most deeply. He's the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. His whole life, as we've already sang this morning, nails, spear shall pierce him through. His whole life is a movement to one place, the cross. On the cross, he fullingly and knowingly looks at and embraces all of our sorrow and sin and murder and injustice and oppression and grief and pain and loss and makes them his own. This is why he was born. At the cross, all of the dragon's rage against God and against man, the image of God, is carried out through the decisions and actions of sinful human beings. However, if that's the end of the story, we're still stuck in our inconsolable grief. And if we follow him, we are only following him to our death. Yet it's true, yes, it's true on the cross, the dragon's intentions are carried out. The devil's will. But why do we rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Because God's intentions were carried out too. Turn the worst evil into the greatest good. The dragon's Herod, and ultimately the dragon's greatest triumph, was actually his worst defeat. For Jesus doesn't remain dead, but he rises. He rises to life. It's why we're here on a Sunday. It's why we're here every Sunday, including this last day of the year, this gathering Every time we gather is a testimony to the resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection that is coming. Jesus took into himself every awful thing that could ever happen and had it do his work. Had it do its work on him and in him and upon him. Unleash itself on him in order for him to overcome it and destroy it as he rises to life in victory and in triumph. Friends, the power of the most awful things that can ever happen to us is in their meaninglessness, their purposelessness, and hopelessness. I gave myself multi-syllabic words to work on there. Their meaninglessness, their purposelessness, their hopelessness, and their despair. Their pointlessness, their finality is what is so frightening, what is so overwhelming, what tempts us to despair. But what we see in Christ and ultimately at the cross is that God takes the very worst and through it brings about the very best. Through the most awful sin and sorrow which Jesus bears, he brings about the greatest joy and that is the pattern of life for those of you who are in Christ. That doesn't mean there won't be pain and deep sorrow. We mourn, we mourn deeply, and we mourn with those who mourn. And ultimately, only a Christian is free to mourn fully. 
Because there is one who holds you up and one who sustains you all the way through and ultimately at the end of it, there is joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame, and sits down at the right hand of the throne on high. Because at the end of it, there is joy and there is the one who sustains you, who has borne it all. Because otherwise, how can you give, how can you allow yourself to grieve? Because at the end of it, without him is simply a bottomless pit of darkness. But in Christ, you are sustained. You are not hopeless. Because sin and sorrow and death and pain do not triumph, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. And that resurrection power is at work in you now through faith by the Holy Spirit stirring in you a hope for that day when those things, those sorrows and pains will be no more. Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Your king has come. Come to him. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Fall before him. Open up your treasures and give them to him. Give yourself to him. Give all that you have and all that you are to him and receive from him his indestructible life instead, awaiting the day when he comes again in glory and you will see him face to face. Let's pray. Our God and Father, in the name of your Son, our Lord, in the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit, May you apply this word to our hearts this morning as only you can. May the devil not steal it away. <laughs> may, may not the, tr the troubles and desire for other things in this life cause thorns to, to choke the word. May, 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 they may troubles not cause it to wither. But may, may this word find fruitful and receptive and fertile hearts, Lord Jesus that come to you, seeking you, knocking, doing whatever it takes to come to you and rejoicing exceedingly with great joy and falling before you and bowing before you, knowing that you have come. The king has triumphed. God wins. Goodness wins. Love wins. Resurrection wins. Jesus triumphs and reigns now at the right hand of God on behalf of his beloved, and he is coming again to make them his own. Lord, may these truths percolate in our hearts this, as we leave here this morning. And may we leave rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, for you are worthy. We pray these things in your name, in the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit. to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. 
Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.